Section 16 of Constructive Conscious Control of the Individual by F. Matthias Alexander. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 3, Chapter 2, Imitation. The psychophysical process called imitation would seem to be one that is operative in most people to a high degree as compared with other fundamental processes. We are all aware of this aptitude, as we call it, in our fellow beings, and subconscious imitation of the characteristics of others is a factor which plays a great part in the development and growth and also in the use of our individual psychophysical selves. Overwhelming proof is forthcoming in regard not only to the natural aptitude and subconscious inclination to imitate, but also in regard to the harmful consequences which may result from imitation and we will now consider some of the chief factors responsible for the disappointing results accruing from the exercise of this natural aptitude in civilization. This book deals with the defects, peculiarities, imperfect uses, etc., of the human psychophysical organism. Furthermore, it is herein contended that the majority of people are more or less beset with these shortcomings, whilst in a certain number... These shortcomings are so extreme that they may be said to constitute a condition of deformity in the human creature. Herein lies the cause of the disappointing and harmful results which follow imitation. For the process of imitation remains inoperative unless there is something striking to be imitated, and the chief stimulus to imitation comes from our perception, subconscious or conscious, of some characteristic or striking manifestations of another human creature, and such manifestations are, as a rule, the manifestations of psychophysical defects or peculiarities. In all spheres of present-day life, the dangers from the individual imitation of others' defects or peculiarities are very great, and it is therefore of the utmost importance that these dangers should be eliminated, or at least minimized, in all our activities in learning or learning to do, particularly where people are associated as teachers and pupils, as for instance in schools and gymnasiums. In fact, wherever teachers and pupils are in that close contact which makes possible the operation of the process of imitation. Most children at school manifest defects in the use of themselves in the ordinary acts of life, in a large number of cases very serious defects, and all kinds of drills and remedial exercises are employed in the attempt to eradicate these defects. Yet, except in very rare instances, the teachers employed in these remedial and other spheres in our schools are too often themselves beset with exaggerated forms of the same or other defects or peculiarities. If teachers are worthy of the name, it is certain that their pupils will be influenced by them in more ways than one, and that most pupils will tend subconsciously to imitate them. Now, as has already been pointed out, the most striking manifestations of these teachers will prove the most potent stimuli to the pupil's processes of imitation. Such manifestations, for instance, as peculiarities in the quality of a voice, in the manner of opening the mouth, of using the arms, or in defective utterance, vocal production, or use of the different parts of the organism in standing, walking, sitting, etc., in fact, all defects or peculiarities manifested as striking characteristics of the teachers 
will be found to be the most potent stimuli to the pupil's aptitude for imitation. A realization of the serious consequences involved in the foregoing will bring conviction that all teachers who manifest defects and peculiarities which are the result of their own unreliable sensory appreciation and unsatisfactory use of their psychophysical organism are a bad example, indeed a positive danger to their pupils, and that the possibility of satisfactory psychophysical results accruing to both pupil and teacher is seriously minimized by this impeding factor, viz. the acquisition of defects and peculiarities by imitation. In any sphere of learning on a subconscious basis, we have to face the fact that pupil and teacher are imbued with the erroneous idea that the pupil, by observing the teacher doing something successfully, will be able to copy it and succeed also. The pupil is quite convinced as to this, and the teacher is certain that if he teaches the pupil to do as he, the teacher, believes he does himself, he will succeed in enabling the pupil to succeed. Footnote. Take the case of a singer who, in consequence of throat trouble, is forced to retire from the public platform and become a teacher of singing. I can recall two such instances in which singers were forced to retire through this cause, and having listened to their vocal efforts on several occasions prior to their retirement, one did not need to be a prophet to be sure that this would happen. For no human throat and accessories could withstand indefinitely the abuse to which they were subjected in the matter of strain and larynx displacement and chest and abdominal distortion through the imperfect use of the psychophysical mechanisms upon the satisfactory use of which depends the normal condition of the specific parts named. When these same people took up teaching, they at once proceeded to impart to their pupils, as far as they were able, the methods of singing or breathing in which they themselves believed. We can only suppose that they believed their methods were correct ones, because they were the ones they had themselves adapted during their days of learning to sing, and had continued to practice up to the time that they took up teaching, and that the fact that they had both lost their voices by remaining faithful to these very methods had not even reached their consciousness. Otherwise, how could they have ventured to try and pass on to others the methods that had been the cause of so much injury to themselves? The power of the human creature to hypnotize himself is nowhere more apparent than in such instances of human idiosyncrasy as this. And a footnote. Yet most of us are aware that if a pupil in some art is sent to watch a great artist, as is so often done, in order that he may learn something which will assist him in his particular art, the pupil is almost invariably more impressed by some characteristics of the artist that may be classed as faults than by his quote-unquote better parts. These characteristics are seized upon by the pupil as factors essential to his own improvement in performance, but experience constantly proves this belief to be mistaken. In the first place, the characteristics may be faults which the genius of the particular artist enables him to defy. It is possible that the artist succeeds in spite of them rather than because of them. Footnote. 
Unfortunately, this tendency may be noticed in all spheres of learning. Take the point in connection with games, for instance. S.H. Smith indulged in a crouch and whirlwind drive. Gore was noted for his forehand drive. Doherty for his use of the unchanged grip, and so on. These characteristics have been imitated by other players with the idea of improving their own game. But again, experience has constantly proved this idea to be mistaken, and for the reasons given above. And a footnote. But even if the characteristics seized upon by the pupil for imitation were of value, the only way by which the pupil could make practical use of them would be, firstly, by a study of the general employment of the organism of the person to be imitated, of which the characteristics named are but special manifestations, and secondly, by being himself re-educated, so as to be able to command the same general use of the organism for good or ill, according to the standard of such use as that enjoyed by the expert he tries to copy. End of section 16.